Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights, where it's all about being inspired to make a positive impact every day. And there is no better place to make a positive impact in an organization than from the chief marketing officer role. But that's not an easy role. I was looking at some data around the average tenure of CMOs. Spencer Stewart does an annual survey, and back in 2020, Their research showed the average tenure of the CMO fell to around 40 months. That was the shortest tenure in more than a decade, and that's half the average tenure of CEOs. So it's a tough job. There's a lot of turn, but there's no greater stage to be exceptional. And my guest today certainly falls into that category. Ben Gibson has spent the past 30 years pursuing great marketing outcomes for a number of B2B companies. This has included serving as Chief Marketing Officer at Nutanix, F5 Networks, Veritas, and Aruba Networks. He also has served in senior marketing and communication leadership roles at Cisco and a wide range of Silicon Valley startups and agencies. Today, Ben serves as an advisor and consultant to emerging startups and various marketing leaders, as well as speaking and writing about his experiences in the industry. Ben is also very active in his community. He serves as a president and board member for a USA water polo club and also the U.S. Master Swimming Club. He also serves as the head coach of the Leland High School swim team. And I think some of those swimmers are still competing out there in California in the state championships. And when he's not doing all of that, Ben competes himself as a U.S. Master swimmer in regional and national competitions. You can go follow Ben and uh, see some of his great content out on his website at bengibsoncmo.com. And I'll bet you, Ben, you've already been up for a few hours. You might have already been in the pool already, but welcome to Market Impact Insights. Yeah, Dan, thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks for the really nice introduction. Yeah, you're right. Some of my swimmers are still swimming. I'm coming to you today from Clovis, California, in the Central Valley of California, where uh, my kids, some of them qualified for the state meet. So, uh, you know, I, I've recently retired from operating roles uh, as a CMO, but I'm certainly still quite busy. So retirement doesn't sound like the right word for it. <laughs> Very active. And so let's go back uh, to the start of your career. Uh, you've had this very, very productive and, and impactful career, but what originally fueled your passion to pursue a career in marketing? Yeah, no, Dan, it's a great question. If I go way back in the memory vaults here, you know, over 30 years ago, you know, when I was getting my undergrad degree, I was a journalism major. And my vision for where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do was to do it either a combination of newspaper way back then, right, long time ago, or uh, broadcast journalism. And so I-, I knew I loved to write. I knew I loved to ask questions and meet new and interesting people. And I think fundamentally tell wonderful stories. And so I, I love telling stories. And 
So at the school newspaper at Long Beach State, where I went to school, I was an editor there. Uh, I did some work in broadcast journalism as well. And so when I graduated in 1991, in the middle of uh, quite a recessionary period economically, right, I said, well, I'll go find my journalism job. And that turned out to be a pretty tough proposition. And so, you know, it turned into then at that point, all right, I love to tell stories. And I was, I had to move back home, right, because I didn't have a job at first. And I took on an internship at a public relations agency uh, in the San Jose area called PRX, kind of a clever name. You know, they did PR for healthcare clients as well as technology. And there I kind of discovered by accident this kind of fusion of storytelling and bringing that together with, okay, how do you publicize a company? How do you position a company and help them stand out for what they do from a lot of others in the market? And so that was kind of the genesis for me that started with kind of the, the art and science of writing and storytelling. And then it started from there to turn into more. Uh, and that was kind of a journey for me that throughout the next 10 years of my career, you know, took me from a journalism major to doing PR and communications to ultimately a broader marketing uh, direction. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so you you have the, the heart of, of the journalist and you talk about storytelling as you took on those bigger roles in your marketing career. Did your background in journalism really keep uh, coming into play and really helping you um, actually as you grew? Like, how did that all uh, connect and work? Yeah, you know, I think it did, particularly in retrospect, right? You know, at the time, I was probably not wise enough to see the connection. But I, I think, you know, the being inquisitive, you know, in terms of trying to find the bigger story or to uncover a story that maybe someone doesn't necessarily want you to tell, you know, I did some investigative reporting work in college, right, and had some tough interviews with folks mm -hmm. that uh, turned into stories that were a bit controversial, right? But, you know, those that skill set early on, and I remember getting calls from some of the people when the stories hit, right, where I got berated, right? Like, how dare you say this? Yep. And I didn't say that. And I had my notes and it was a source. I had other people asking me for my sources. And so it's interesting, both kind of the inquisitive nature of journalism and asking the third, fourth, and fifth question. Um, that works if you're telling a story for a newspaper in the past, right? Or something, you know, digital in the future. Or it works when you're trying to listen to the market, listen to your customers, ask questions in terms of why, why they have the challenges they have. And how can you as um, an individual or as a company or as a provider help solve problems for them? So the inquisitive nature, I think, of journalism really helped. And it also gives you a thick skin, right? And you referenced earlier, <laughs> yeah. you referenced earlier the, the stats around 10 years of CMOs, particularly in technology. Um, you got to have thick skin to do it because everyone's an art critic when it comes to marketing. And that's a cool thing, right? Because it means everyone cares and has an opinion. And I'd much rather have that than have the opposite, people who don't care. But it also requires you to have that, um, that thick skin to a lot of critique. And hey, did you think of doing this differently? Because you get that a lot in the marketing leadership role. Yeah, it's interesting, Ben. You know, my my observation, having worked in a lot of uh, technology companies too, is that it just seems like marketing as a discipline there is this feeling that there's more of a permission for others that maybe have, are trained in a different area, but almost feel entitled and qualified 
to offer a perspective on marketing more so than the other way around. So in other words, like engineering or a technical discipline, not necessarily assuming a marketer is going to uh, be an expert in that area. But it seems like there was, there was more of this mentality that, you know what, I can comment and give you feedback on that advertising or that messaging. I, I, I can be kind of a quasi-marketer, right? Wasn't it interesting how that played out? Yeah, I think um, it's very much a common occurrence. And the way I philosophically always tried to approach that, uh, particularly as I you know, moved into CMO roles, was to turn that into an advantage, right? It was often painful to do so, quite honestly, <laughs> right? Because you have a lot of different opinions and the like. But to me, you know, your brand is, all, is only as powerful as each one of your employees and each one of your key leaders in the company embrace it. Right. And so if you think about it, the brand and the message of the company needs to embody uh, the employee base and the leadership that's there. And, and therefore, kind of going back to journalism, you got to listen. Right. And there's this yeah. there's this soft skill. You know, it's all I always joke that my IQ is OK, but my EQ is what got me through my career. Emotional <laughs> quotient. Right. You got to be able to listen, acknowledge different opinions uh, acknowledge the crazy ones, right? Because sometimes you find a little bit of cool in the crazy, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. And then use that as an opportunity to bring people along. So part of that is saying no with style, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which uh, isn't always yeah. easy thing to do depending on personalities. But that to me was always the really interesting challenge of being in marketing in technology companies where you have a really strong conviction and perspective from the technologist and the engineering uh, leadership and organization. And then on the other hand side, you have the sellers, right? Who oh, are yeah. in front of the customers more than anyone else and are really focused on how do you break through and knock down some of these barriers to getting a deal done. And, and I think serving in the middle of that, it's all to me about diplomacy it's about bridging ideas together and then coming up with something that represents a broader community. Uh, easier said than done and hard to do perfectly well. And I've had plenty of failures as well as successes in that front. And it's just all part of, I think, the fascinating part of the role of being in marketing leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And the practice of marketing itself has certainly changed a lot, even over the last 20 years. And you mentioned science earlier. How have you seen science data analytics evolve in from a CMO perspective, how you can impact performance? Yeah, it's it's a great question, Dan, and a really important uh, evolution of marketing. And it's one I had to evolve and change myself, right? I, I was a journalism major. I wasn't a computer science major, right? Um, I was never good at math <laughs> in my academic career, right? And, you know, for me, it was kind of a later in career, um, renaissance sounds like a kind of a cheesy term, but I kind of went from being all about product marketing and how do you position a product and market and how do you launch it effectively to market to really embracing these art and, and importantly, so the science of demand generation, right? Um, obviously, as things moved and were digitally transformed, right, you had a lot of opportunities to get real-time data in terms of how your customers are using your product, uh, to what degree are they? You have plenty of industries in tech where there's this like pink elephant in the room that customers don't use nearly the features or the capacity or um, the capabilities of what they spent a lot of money for, right? And so then you have this constant high ceiling of how do you market the value of all the stuff they're not taking advantage of, right? And you used to do that more uh, analog based, 
But with digital and with products, you know, the whole realm of SaaS uh, solutions and the like gives marketers that whole weapon to be able to understand, okay, real time, what's going on with usage in the product? How are customers interacting with the product? How do they purchase it? When are they ready to purchase more? Uh, so propensity, you know, propensity to buy modeling and things of that nature is just a fascinating area that I still think we're in the, I think B2C has it much more figured out, but B2B I think is catching up on that front, but I still think there's a long ways to go. And it's blending together the right brain of a brilliant creative marketer with the left brain capabilities you often get with folks that maybe don't start in a conventional marketing career that come from computer science, uh, that come from engineering, that come from the finance realm. I've seen some really successful bridges from folks that are wonderful in FP&A roles moving into um, a data science type of role, uh-huh. right, where uh-huh. they're becoming really a new lifeblood and uh, catalyst for great marketing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as as a leader of marketing teams, and you've probably seen that the skill sets then that you proactively recruit for needing to evolve also, right, as the technology and the capabilities evolve. And and almost uh, what I would consider going way back, maybe a more unsung function within marketing, which be uh, traditionally called marketing operations. Yeah. Or analytics. What's interesting is that, boy, that sure changed, right, where now that's at the forefront in terms of any successful marketing organization, that's that's really your strong foundation is having that that analytical capability, the scientific um, assessment, and then the translation of data into action. Yeah, you really put it right. It is, I believe, really the fundamental foundation, a little alliteration there, right? But that yeah. that's where I always say one of my leadership tenets is always hire smarter than you are. And the smartest guy or gal in the room, simply put, has to be uh, in my view, I mean, they all have to be really smart and you want to find people that cover your blind spots. Uh, but someone that is brilliant and has that left brain capability and the ability then to connect it into such a creative pursuit as marketing. Uh, how do you build the stack, right? How do you take this whole realm of data? Data is not so great, right? Actionable data with insight behind it is what becomes really cool and interesting, right? Uh, easier said than done. And that's where you need some brilliant people to go with the systems of collecting that data. Otherwise, it's just one of those, what's the term they've, it was kind of hot a few years ago, data lakes. Data lakes aren't interesting, right? It's what you do with it that uh, makes a lot of uh, interesting music. Uh, but to do that, you really need those kind, that kind of brain power to lead. You know, I, I always say it's strategy and operations and insights, right? You bring that together uh, and that's a career, right? And that's a career that starts out as an early analyst that can grow up and then you can bridge out into a lot of different areas. Well, speaking of people and speaking of career development, I know you have a very interesting perspective as someone develops their career. What is the impact of being affiliated with a particular company? Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, actually, you know, I... When I announced my, I guess, in quotes, retirement to go kind of the next phase of my life adventure, um, I I blogged about this and I kind of did a walkthrough of my um, career experiences, right? And when I started doing it, particularly you look back, I started realizing how many different companies and agencies I had been at. And it's this balancing act, I feel, you know, I kind of see marketing, I kind of connected to being an artist, Right. And obviously there's a left brain side to this, too. But to be a creative marketer, 
you have to constantly reinvent yourself, just like, you know, a music artist has to reinvent themselves uh, often, right? And the most successful, enduring musical artists, right? They change over time. They come out with fresh new look, fresh new music, you know, different stylistic approaches to things. And so for me, kind of by accident back then, and sometimes recklessly, I would say earlier in my career, you know, I, I jump around. Right. And there's challenge with that. There's challenge with that in terms of when you're early in your career and people look at your resume. Wow, you've been at a few different places. And that's something I had to overcome, I suppose. But when I look back when I was writing this blog and I kind of put all of the different pieces together as a whole, what that movement for me earlier in my career did for me is it gave me so many different uh, unique experiences with different company cultures and the like. Uh, that I, I think it really helped me later on in my career be able to engage and debate and remember those art critics, right? Yeah. Be able to ha say, well, I've seen this particular uh, scenario before. Here's what I saw work or didn't work for it. And so that way people know you're listening to you and you're speaking from a voice of experience. So it's like that challenge of how do you get that diversity of experience that sometimes, depending on company, can be difficult to get if you're there for five years, 10 years, 15 years, right? Um, that's not to say there aren't companies where you can absolutely do that, right? I, I think larger companies, I spent 10 years of my career, but not in one extended 10-year at Cisco, right? Uh, Dan, you know, you and I. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Cisco was a place that was run with a lot of autonomous business units, and different functions that, you know, some were matrix functions, some were defined to a particular business unit. And a company like that, I think, gives you interesting opportunities to get a lot of diverse experience and to be able to, forgive the term, hop around within a company and do a lot right. of different things. And I think that's really important early to mid-career to get those kind of experiences, whether you get them by experiencing different companies or whether you get them at a company where you have enough diversity and opportunity within the company to do so, I, I wouldn't trade it in. And I blogged about it mid-career. It was in the early to mid-2000s. It was kind of a challenging time for startups. I wanted to go to a smaller company, but I kind of felt like my career was kind of lost at that point because... I, I wasn't going to successful startups and things didn't work out and I had to hop along and I got all this scar tissue back then. But when I look back on it, it, boy, all of that diversity of experience, both in terms of scenarios, as well as some pretty acidic moments and the like, yes. I, think, uh, I, I think yielded out for me in the long term with a lot of um, perspective to be a better leader and a better marketer. I don't always recommend the number of places I was earlier in my career. I can admit that now that, you know, I'm going on a different path. Um, but somehow I think it's really important to find that way. And sometimes it isn't being at the same company for too long, particularly if you don't feel like you're getting an opportunity to stretch some muscles in different ways. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, you hit on something earlier, uh, which is around leadership development and, and you, you might uh, get more incremental gains through the learning from the failures than just writing the successes, right? So being open and being vulnerable to say, you know what, I'm, I am going to have some failures, but it's what I take from those failures and how I apply it that's going to be the defining moment. Yeah, I, I think you haven't lived a, a proper career until you've had some blazing failures going down in flames, <laughs> right? And, but it's character building. And if you haven't failed, 
at something, you're not taking enough risk or you're not being honest with yourself, right? And, you know, there's sometimes this drive to be perfect and to always, you know, and sometimes in a marketing leadership role, right? Sometimes you can feel like you're on the defensive because back to the conversation about a lot of people have different opinions about how to do your job, right? Um, but I think part of the way to disarm and get people on your train versus like trying to get derailed off of your track um, is to be open and vulnerable about where you've experienced something, if you've seen it fail yourself. And you almost build up some better trust that way, as well as you've seen what failure looks like, you get the scar tissue from it, you get thicker skin from it, and it helps you operate with conviction moving forward. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, as a CMO and these growing technology organizations, you've led very diverse uh, and large global marketing teams. And that's always an interesting dynamic, isn't it? When you're leading teams that uh, represent different cultures, sometimes different languages, uh, what have you found are the keys in really enabling a global marketing organization serving very different local markets to really step up and deliver? Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. And I think it's one of the fundamental challenges of a global CMO role um, that often you can fall into the trap of... uh, (laughs) forget the term, sniffing the corporate glue, right? And you yeah. know, US-based company, Silicon Valley-based company in many cases where I worked, right? Um, and, and something I learned when I saw at massive scale at Cisco, and I really tried to emulate, well, learn from some things I thought could have been done better, um, but then I really tried to practice that at Aruba Networks where I was at and other roles to scale out. I think it's really difficult to scale without delivering autonomy. Uh, and in particular, when I look at a global marketing organization, and I think about the leaders of European, you know, EMEA, pick your, you know, your acronym yeah. for Europe, Middle East, Africa, um, the dynamics in that market, the cultures in that market, think about it, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, only someone in the U.S. can come up with that acronym, right? Because right. <laughs> how many different diverse cultures and business environments can you find in EMEA? Right. But um, one of my key organizational tenets and leadership principles was to make sure that my head of EMEA marketing, my head of America's marketing, my head of Asia or Asia Pacific and Japan, whatever you know the company calls it, that what comes with that leadership responsibility essentially is a lot of CMO level skill set. Um, you see companies that have those roles and it's kind of simply put field marketing, right? And what gets equated with that is do great events, right? Match up with your account reps in a B2B model, do that sort of thing. And what I found was when I was at a really large company where you had field marketing, as it was called, often it was rolled into the sales organization. Well, then you got a lot of short term, you know, let's make the number kind of activity, right? And if there was a budget squeeze, what was the first thing to cut? Right? Was it the quota carrying rep or was it the field marketing resource dollars or even people? And typically it was the latter in my experiences I saw kind of mid-career. And so one of my principles is you have a CMO of each theater or region, depending on what the company calls it, and then you put a lot of purchasing power in their hands. And so I've always believed that you want to put the majority of the demand gen dollars as close to the market they're serving as possible. Because I think it's really hard to make smart decisions about marketing mix and investment decisions 
for Eastern Europe, uh, for Spain, for South Africa, from San Jose, California, right? And so uh, I, I really try to put the purchasing power in the hands of these theater leaders and the plan. And then corporate is about a business partner approach where they align with, okay, here are the requirements we have in the market and what can we do to make you successful? Now, there's always going to be kind of a balance, a hybrid approach, but I'd like to see 70% of market mix defined in the markets of which you serve as you scale. Mm-hmm. And then 30% mm-hmm. is reserved for those, okay, we're going all out global on this. We're major new global product launch or major new campaign we're launching to market. And that way, when you give them 70%, one, it endears a much uh, better collaborative engagement with sales leadership because, hey, they're on my side. It's not some ivory tower off to incorporate that's deciding where we generate demands to ultimately generate bookings and revenue for the company. So you get better partnership and then you get career progression and a lot of fascinating development for people that were in EMEA head of marketing roles that have become extremely successful CMOs of global companies. Because you know what? It's not just field marketing. It's orchestrating marketing mix and execution for the uh, diverse business environment of which you serve and better be in that market than be across the ocean to do so. Yeah, that's very true. I think also one of the greatest opportunities for those regional marketing leaders, they're in a position to really work on that relationship, the sales and the marketing relationship, which you know, Ben, um, there's always this, uh, Let's ideally you'd have a healthy tension there, but uh, there's often tension there, but they're uniquely in a position with those local sales teams to bridge um, and be a face of marketing to those local sales teams. And so that's another dynamic. Did you see that play out as well as part of that, taking on that CMO empowered role regionally? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, I was at a large company, right? Where we came up with a lot of great launches and campaigns and the like, but the biggest challenge was aligning the sales organization to that great campaign. I've I've never seen a hugely successful campaign work at a B2B company unless your sales organization was lockstep and excited about it and are out there essentially being first-line ambassadors for it, right? And so having the um, the relationship, which you need to enable with both great relationship with autonomy and also with spending power, right? So there's yeah. things that can get done. Uh, I think that's what really helps that out. And so I've seen examples of trying to roll out a new marketing initiative that fell flat on its face because the folks in Europe said, yeah, the Americans don't get us. We're going to do it our own way, right? And that happens a lot, quite honestly, right? And so as a CMO, you have to be willing to let go and provide autonomy uh, and give other regions a voice in it, borrow the best of what they're doing so you, they know you're listening to them, and then ideally come out with some global initiatives that play with some customization to each market. The risk with that approach is when you get a lot of autonomy, you get a lot of dispersion and maybe some inconsistency in approach. Uh, if you're not careful, it might be a little bit more expensive right, to do so when you have distributed uh, execution and activity. So that's kind of the tension there. You have to be okay with a little bit of it, particularly with maybe a little bit of custom approach for different markets, right? You know, I, I hate saying, well, this isn't compliant with our look and feel and everything we do here. You got to be really comfortable with letting go a bit on that front, because if you don't, you don't scale. 
if you don't, you don't get the hearts and minds of the sellers and the partners that are out there in the local markets where they've got to hit their number every day. And you just can't possibly get the visceral requirement, you know, if you're headquartered elsewhere, no matter how much you travel. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so stepping back and taking a look at leadership, in your opinion, Ben, what do you think really makes the difference between exceptional leadership versus just good enough? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'll I'll touch on a few areas there. I I touched on this earlier, right? Being better with your ears than you are with your mouth, (laughs) right? I, I think we're talking about journalism and that sort of thing. Uh, listening, asking good questions, acknowledging different opinions and the like, uh, that's just so critical, right? And I can't tell you how many leaders, some very successful leaders, up and coming leaders, where they had to develop was in, they had conviction, they had a great intuition of what to do, uh, but often they were such in a hurry because they were so smart that they failed to bring others along because they weren't uh, exhibiting and demonstrating that they could listen and acknowledge different points of view and find ways to, with savvy, weave that into how you move forward. Because if you do that, often it's like kind of back to the hearts and minds thing. It's like, do you want to enroll as many people as possible to get a exponential effect? Or are you going to drive something through? Because you know it's the right thing to do. So I think the art of listening, demonstrable listening, is really important. I think another one, I'll kind of take a different angle on this. As a CMO, I think you have to think like a Hollywood producer or director. Um, So I love movies. And one of my hobbies growing up, I used to play different musical instruments. Uh, I was in the marching band, stuff like that. And I, I collected movie soundtracks. And from when I was a kid until now, I've always been fascinated by... Um, how Hollywood, Disney is a great example of this, particularly when they bought my favorite Hollywood franchise, uh, Star Wars, right? The Star Wars franchise, how they market um, a rollout of a new movie and how they cross promote, how they do integrated campaigning and the like. So, you know, I touched on this in a blog I wrote and I call them signature moments. And there's doing a product launch. You know, Steve Jobs was the master at this, right? I think Disney is a master of this, right? When they launched the latest Star Wars uh, trilogy, you know, gosh, maybe that was like eight or nine years ago now, Um, but how they ignite their grassroots, right? Uh, That could be a user conference for a tech company, right? Or a sales kickoff, how they uh, get the enthusiasts in local markets to get really excited. That could be user groups, like VMware is a great company around doing virtual and on the ground user groups. Um, how do you do a brilliant media campaign around that that's targeted to folks you have to get? Uh, how do you use the iconic pieces of your company or product that alike like and other folks that swear by it to be the voice for your campaign for it? Then there's the big opening. Then you cross-promote, right? Not only can you go to the movie to see it, but I took my, you know, um, our family went to Disneyland a few weeks ago and I went to that Star Wars theme park, right? And so there, and then they're selling you new lightsaber toys for like $500. And I got one because I'm a total Star Wars geek and it looks like the real thing. (laughs) So um, I'm just using that example to share when you think about, you got to launch a new product. You have a new campaign you want to roll to market. I've told others and I've tried to practice this and you can do this with larger budgets, but I think you can also do this with smaller budgets. 
think like a Hollywood director or producer and how do you bring in something that has nothing to do with technology, but you're borrowing from some of the time proven ways to cut through the noise in a different busy, busy market, right? Um, how do you choose the right soundtrack for your campaign? Uh, how do you create an event and bring in an iconic person? We brought in Mark Hamill to speak at our user conference. Had nothing to do with the technology we were talking about. We had customers literally in tears with their yellowed Star Wars posters from the seventies. And you know what? They are loyal to you for life. Uh, and then, oh, by the way, let's talk about what you know we can do to expand and solve your problems with our solutions we have for you, right? So um, I think being a marketing leader is borrowing and being inspired out of industry. For me, it's Hollywood because that's what makes it so fun. And, uh, you know, Hollywood, Bollywood is like this too. You choose your entertainment medium. I think there's some great lessons to be learned about how you cut through the noise. And I think bringing that to the table as a marketing leader uh, is really powerful and important. And then I think the last one I would say, and it kind of ties to the first, you know, I mentioned earlier, hire smarter than you are. And I think it's the only way truly to be successful. And it's not just hire someone that's smarter than you are. And it's not to make you look better. It's to bring someone in to so they can advance. And you hire smarter and you never miss an opportunity to shine a bright light on them. Right. And sometimes it can be because you're running fast and doing a lot of things. But you, you kind of have to check some of your ego at the door when you ascend to a CMO role, in my opinion. Right. You don't always have to be the person main stage. Right. I have wonderful people that work for me where I, I tried to make sure that they were main stage, uh, that they were presenting, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in different venues and the like. Sometimes it had to be me, but I tried to find opportunities for that to happen, right? Because, you know, the best companies in the world do wonderful succession planning. And as a leader, you're measured by boards that look at this carefully by, okay, who do you have on your staff that could be an immediate su successor to you if you were, God forbid, hit by a bus or the like, right? And so um, having that kind of focus, and you can't have that experience or that you know, capability unless you're hiring smarter than you are. And smarter than you are could be with unique experiences. It could be some brilliant people in terms of background, education, the like that you don't have, right? Um, you learn from them, uh, you help them grow. And those are the folks that really uh, exceed expectations across the board. But you got to keep them fed, right? And part of that is making sure they have visibility. So I guess to sum it up, right, you know, first one, you know, is, you know, I'd say, you know, think like a Hollywood producer, borrow from an industry and use creativity like you see with great music, great entertainment venues and the like. And how can you find clever ways to bring that into your marketing, right? Uh, use your ears before your mouth and hire smarter than you are. Yeah, powerful analogy. And I'm going to Disneyland next month, and I'm going to be thinking about that lightsaber, Ben. I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to that. But but then shifting over into the servant leadership is what went through my mind when you're talking about giving visibility for your teams, the really smart people that you're hiring. And it's I always felt like one of the greatest contributions that any leader could make would be the development of the people that they bring into the organization, not just around their own personal contributions, but really how do they help make others they bring in achieve their best and contribute more? So you, you hit it spot on. 
Yeah, thanks. Easier said than done, right? But I, I've um, I've had wonderful people work for me. Uh, I, I wrote about this in my blog on my career kind of journey. You know, it, there, there's a gentleman named Chris Koza. He was my head of EMEA marketing at Aruba Networks, right? Back to the be the CMO of your region, right? Today, he's doing amazing work at Zscaler as their CMO. And I, I'm looking at him saying, wow, I wish I would. I didn't think of that when I was doing the job and the kind of stuff he's doing there, you know, not always with the budgets that you have at larger companies. I think it's a great example of that. And, and Chris's uh, example for me of someone who is smarter than I was in many ways um, that I really tried to focus on making sure he had a lot of autonomy and a lot of visibility. And I think it's paid off well for him in his career. And uh, it's because of him and hopefully you know, maybe I gave him a little assist along the way and uh, it's something I'm certainly proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Good example. So you've obviously over the course of your career given a lot of advice and mentored. I want to flip it around, Ben. What's the most impactful piece of business advice you've ever received? Maybe something you've really held on to that's really had meaning for you across your career. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think there's two things. One is kind of more specific to a scenario, and then there's a bigger one. I'll start with the more specific one. Uh, Dominic Orr, CEO of Aruba Networks. Um, he, I loved working for for Dominic. Uh, he was iconic in the networking industry, uh, a passionate, driven, very customer-centric CEO, uh, and I learned a ton from him. And one of the things I learned from him was the power of a company and the kind of loyalty you get when a company invests in educating its customers, certifying their customers, uh, giving them tools and capabilities to help our, the customer advance their own careers, get promoted and the like. And um, so tactically, you think about things like, you know, technical certification programs. You know, I, I think Cisco is the shining example of this, right? Secret sauce oh, Cisco. They have several secret sauces, but for me, the biggest one is that Cisco certified engineer. Really hard to get it. Once you get it, you can solve a lot of complex technology challenges with networking technology. And guess what, right? Those are the people that got promoted. Uh, and guess what? Those are the people who were religiously loyal to Cisco over many, many, many years. Whether it was the best product or the best capability or not, it was always there. And so Dominic Gord taught me when you do this, uh, don't try to make money off of it. The money will come in the form of loyalty. Instead, it's kind of like this gets into like a lot of political commentary today, but you know, can education be free uh, to really empower folks? And if you're the one providing the education, the certification, the new capabilities, I think that can be one of the most powerful uh, expand and adopt type of campaigns, which is a hot term these days relative to SaaS businesses. Boy, if you can find really cool digitally transformable ways to educate your customer base on how to start to use far more of what they probably don't use with everything they bought today, uh, and they can get promoted in the process, do it. Don't worry about making money off of it. I've seen many companies that charge for their education services. Don't do it. Resist temptation, right? You know, find your business model. It's going to come back to you in terms of cost savings on customer support deferral, uh, as well as deeper loyalty. So I think that's one um, piece of advice that I've always tried to live by and tried to enact in companies I've been at. 
The other one, so I'm a huge fan of Jeffrey Moore, and I've had, uh, you know, Crossing the Chasm, Jeffrey Moore, right? And uh, he's had many phenomenal books, and uh, he's a fascinating guy. And I've had the privilege to be able to work with him on some engagements at companies I've been at. And, you know, there's, you know, I, as a CMO, I was really faced with a big challenge where, <clears throat> as a company, we were acquiring a, in a lot of uh, cool new tuck-in type of technology or products. And there was this intuition in the company of, hey, okay, we got these great new products. We want to expand the portfolio. We're in high growth mode. Get it to market. Right. And one thing Jeffrey Moore taught me, uh, and I saw through an engagement as well as what I read in his books, was around the art of incubation. That you have your mainstay core product offerings that are driving your business. You want to be more efficient and drive more efficiency out of that business and go to market. But then you need to be able to incubate to make sure you have an innovation train coming. But you can run into a huge mistake if you try to too hastily take something that should be an incubation mode because maybe the product maturity is earlier than it needs to be. Maybe your sales force, your sales engineer population uh, isn't a believer in the product yet or they're not incented to sell it, sell it yet, right? There's many reasons why you shouldn't rush to take new products, particularly ones that get acquired into a company. And the term is always tuck-in, uh, which is the like. But the advice is incubate, be very selective about what you incubate and don't be in a hurry to take that to market, right? And when you do though, you do so with the might of the company behind it, which means you can't do it for more than one, I believe in any given period. And that I think holds true for a small, medium or large company. And so incubate, know when to graduate in incubation uh, to help transform a company and take you to a new market adjacency and don't be in a hurry to do it, do it right. Um, have Salesforce alignment, uh, have customer validation that you have uh, market fit and readiness. Uh, make sure your technical community and your selling organization are believers in that. And yes, make sure you've got a great incentive model so folks can uh, retire quota based off of that. I've seen countless examples of being in a hurry to take early product to market. You often see that with brilliant engineering-centric organizations. And believe me, you need a lot of brilliant engineering-centric thinking uh, to be successful in our industry. Uh, but you have to resist temptation to take some brilliant innovation and take it to market too quickly. And Jeffrey Moore taught me, don't be in a hurry, incubate. And then when you're ready to take something to market and graduate from incubation, if you do more than one at the time, uh, you're probably spreading yourself way too thin and you're going to lose a lot of opportunity. Kind of a long answer to your question, but those are two that really stuck with me. No, it definitely resonates. And as you were talking about the Jeffrey Moore example, uh, words that, that come to mind are discipline, patience, pacing, and then commitment when you do finally flip the switch and, and go to market. So, uh, Definitely. That, that's hard. That discipline, you know, the temptation, especially if you are um, looking at short term kind of perspective, sometimes, hey, we need to bring this, we need to rush this, we need to bring it to market, our customers want it, or maybe our sales teams think they want it, 
And, you know, just avoiding that temptation to just go too early. You're exactly right on that. I think a great summing up of it. Dan, you just showed great journalism uh, chops there, right? You took my three-minute answer. You <laughs> summed it up with a great headline. Uh, and then you had a great lead paragraph on it. So um, uh, very crisply done. And I think you captured what I said very well. <laughs> yeah. Two journalists coming back and talking about marketing. Who, who would think, right? Yeah, exactly. uh, but uh, so... As we look to the future, Ben, uh, obviously we're in interesting times, dynamic times, but what makes you optimistic? You know, the experience I've had over the past few months coaching the swim team, I have to tell you, and they're not only great athletes, but they're brilliant people and they are doing wonderful things. And, you know, it's college decision times and I'm some of my swimmers, right? They're off to UCLA, they're off to Cal, they're off to... Uh, one's off to Harvard. Uh, you have these brilliant kids. And there's others, by the way, they're going to schools that maybe aren't the quote brand name schools, but I know they're going to do wonderful things. Right. And, and that's what yeah. makes me optimistic is I'm, I've been in, interacting with kind of the next generation of workforce. Right. And this team I have is 75 kids. Right. And so a lot of diversity of interests. They're working really hard at their athletic craft. But I also hear a lot about how they're thinking, the classes they're taking, what they're thinking about doing next. And what excites me is, you know, they're, they're demonstrating to me that, hey, there is no prescribed path that you have to go to this school or you have to go into this particular major or the like. I'm hearing a lot of people with a lot of different diverse interests and acknowledgement that, hey, I can take a lot of different paths and have a really interesting um, next phase you know, as I coming of age, so to speak. And so I, I think having that touch point with this many kids uh, for a very prolonged time, right? Every single day I see them for a few hours a day, weekends with them and the like, That that's really given me a real jolt of excitement, right? Um, that's one thing that makes you feel really good. I, I think the future of marketing and tech is, just, we're just scratching the surface of, I think, what it can do, right? I think... Um, we touched on it earlier, right? Bringing the science of data um, and fusing that with digitally enabled products and services and capabilities. I, I think there's an awesome opportunity for folks that maybe would have gone into engineering, decoding, maybe folks that would have gone into investment banking, right? Folks that would have yeah. gone into the world of finance or the like. I, I think marketing uh, is opening up to a lot of different diverse skill sets and educational backgrounds. And I think it's just at the early stages of that, right? And um, I, I've started to see that in the latter portions of my career. And I'm excited to see what's coming up next in that regard, because I think the role of marketing is really diversifying. You know, 20, 30 years ago, it's like throw a great event, do a great product launch, right? Write a great press release, right? Make sure Gartner loves you and off you go. Right? <laughs> um, but I think yeah. it's gotten so much more diverse. Um, and there's so much more that marketing can do to be a growth driver for a company, um, with fostering the right collaboration with sales, right? Uh, bridging that with an engineering or product organization, I think it just gives you a lot of unique challenges that you can grow up to be, you know, a, a marketer that's like a diplomat, a secretary of state, bridging divides, uh, and then going and having some great outcomes for the business. And so I just think the, the discipline of marketing in the technology industry, in the B2B space, which is obviously where I grew up and what I've done my entire career, 
I just think there's a lot more room to innovate and grow on that front. And I think it's going to attract new and different types of people with different backgrounds that maybe aren't the classic ones you would think of up front. Well, Ben, as we wrap up our conversation today, do you have any other final advice for marketing leaders that are looking to take their teams to the next level? Yeah, I'd say um, autonomy, right? Uh, I'd say if, if you're trying to scale globally, be willing to let go, uh, be willing to let a phenomenal leader you have in Europe, maybe even a country marketing manager to experiment and try new things, right? Watch it carefully. Uh, and you're watching it carefully, not for compliance, but for inspiration and create the avenues for wonderful acts of marketing that happen, say, in Singapore to get brought back to the mothership, so to speak, whether you be based in California, be based in Europe, wherever you're based. And uh, that's how you build a global marketing practice, right? Uh, you, you can have leaders at all levels and they want to feel like they're contributing not only to their own patch, but to the bigger good. And I think that's a great way to do so. So I think that's one thing I would say. Um, I'll repeat it ad nauseum, lead with your ears, right? Hard to understand what's going on in the market unless you're listening very, very carefully. Listening to the data, listening to your customers, human to human. Uh, that's something I always really profess. And the last thing I would say is when fostering and developing careers, I, I've always told folks, whether it be within a company or maybe when someone is considering doing something else outside the company, um, make sure you're running to, not running from. And you could be running from where you feel like you're stale or maybe running from a manager you don't like or the like, but um, it's never the right primary reason to make a switch. Um, the right way to make a switch is when you are sprinting towards a new opportunity within the company, a new role within your organization, uh, a new promotion that you want to see, right? It can't be just about the money or the bigger title. It's got to be something that you know you would love to take on in a broader sense. You need to be running to that mission. Uh, and maybe it's to another company, right? But in all those cases, you got to be running to it, not running from something that you feel like you want to get away from. I've never seen that work out very well. If you're running from, you'll be running from again in the not too distant future. So that'd be the last thing I'd say on that front. Run to the opportunity based on the mission and what you want to get done in your career. And if you do that, high chances are you're going to have a lot of fun and uh, move your career the way you want it to go. Well, Ben, thanks again for joining and sharing your journey, your experiences, and really being the embodiment of exceptional marketing leadership. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for having me. And a reminder to the audience, please continue to give the gift of feedback to go and rate and review this podcast. Want to hear from you. You can easily do that on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.